0: Esther, chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. When Mordecai learned all that he had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, whenever the king's command and his decree reached, there was There was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathek, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn. What this was and why it was. Hadig went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him, and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. This is the word of God.
1: Well, let's let's pray. Father, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, I love these people and I want the best for them. And I believe the best I can offer them is to offer them you. And so please help me faithfully proclaim your word, um, the full counsel of your word. Help me uh, lovingly and humbly uh, offer them your truth and your glory to behold and to enjoy and to rest in this morning. And uh, help me make much of you. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, church, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. We are on sermon number 5 of of probably a total of 10 sermons uh, preaching through the book of Esther. And this is a sermon series that we've titled, God on Every Page. And while God is actually never mentioned on any page in the book of Esther, we are invited to look for God on every page. And throughout our study of Esther, we've been witnessing and we've been learning about the providence of God. And you remember a concise and a helpful definition of God's providence is it is God's gracious oversight of the universe, God's gracious oversight oversight of the universe his providence it consists of him being in control of all things of him being in charge of how all things turn out of him never making any mistakes and him always having his best people's interest uh his his people's best interest at heart excuse me But the story of Esther, uh, the story of Esther does not just allow us to sit back and be mesmerized by the providence of God. Certainly, to some degree, we should be doing that, to sit back and just watch how God is orchestrating all these events. But that's not all we can do because also in the story of Esther, uh, we see human beings being called to participate in his providence. Called to participate in his providence. When when I was a kid, uh, we went to watch a family member perform in a musical, uh, The Music Man. And I forget how old I was, but I was probably elementary age, and I remember sitting through this musical as a child, and uh, and honestly, it was not that fun. I was kind of bored. Uh, maybe you can relate if th- the theater's not really your thing. Uh, and I was kind of just sitting there, just kind of bored to, to be at this musical. Uh, but this musical, it was a little different because one of the final scenes in the musical uh, consists of a bunch of kids marching in uh, marching band uniforms playing instruments. And so what this, uh, this group did was that towards the end of the performance, they went out through the crowd and found all the little kids and asked them if they wanted to be in the final scene, if they would like to participate in part of the performance. And I figured it had to be better than just sitting there through this uh, thing, and so I said yes, and I went out to the lobby, and I got fitted with a, a marching band uniform and, like, one of those cool, you know, hats, uh, those marching band hats, and, uh, and then they handed me a clarinet. Um, which I was kind of bummed about. Uh, no offense if you play the clarinet. I was just hoping for something a little cooler, like a drum or a guitar or something like that. But they hand me, they hand me. I get this clarinet, and uh, I was a little disappointed. That's what I got. But I still kind of lined up with the rest of the kids. And then the final scene arrives, and we get to march into the auditorium, kind of pretending to be playing these instruments, uh, while the real orchestra actually played. And we got to march around the audience and march up on stage and everywhere. And uh, and it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of it was way better than just sitting there watching this thing. Right. I had a joy. There was great joy in getting to participate in the performance. Now, listen, the performance was not dependent upon me like they weren't holding their breath. If I, you know, hit all the right notes on my clarinet, uh, it was not dependent upon me. But there was, man, great joy and great blessing for me to participate in what was going on. And this morning in Esther chapter 4, we are going to see Esther and Mordecai invited to participate in the providence of God. Now, we've we've already established in the last few sermons that they are not the heroes of the story. God is the hero of the story, but we're going to see that God invites his people to participate in his heroic story. Now, if we could be honest, I think it's sometimes easy for us to see how we participate in God's story and how we participate in God's providence uh, when everything's going well. Right? Like when everything in our life is happy, everyone's healthy, when there's no conflict, uh, when there's no injustice, when there's no hardship or pain, when everything in our life is, is K-love, right? I mean, you know what I'm—when when everything is K-love, everything's positive and encouraging, right? So when life is K-love, it can be very easy to say, yes, like, that's easy. I know how to participate with God when life is all good. But what about when life is not what about when life is not positive and encouraging? Like, how, how do we participate with God when things are not well? When people are not, when we are not happy, when we are not healthy, uh, when conflict is all around us, when hardships and pain are all that we can see in front of us, how, like, can we still participate in God's plans and purposes then? That, that's, that's the question we have to ask today. Like, when that dark cloud is around us, like, can we still participate in God's plans and purposes then? Because I think all of us, uh, all of us have seasons, and many of us are in a season right now where, where it seems like this dark cloud is kind of resting over you and has maybe settled down so much on top of you that it's like a thick fog that you can't even see past. You know that feeling where you can't even imagine. You can't imagine seeing sunshine at the end of it, right? You can't imagine not being discouraged. You can't imagine not being heartbroken. Like, how do we participate in God's plans and purposes like when when the clarinet is offered to us instead of the, the, the drum or something else we were hoping for? Like, can we still participate even in the midst of a dark cloud and a thick fog, that's what we're going to look at this morning. So look, look uh, with me at, at Esther chapter 4. Esther chapter 4. Hear these words. I'm going to start in verse 1. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and a bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate. De- Gate clothed in sackcloth, and in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Okay, what what we saw last week, to catch catch you guys up if you weren't here last week, what we saw last week was that Haman and Xerxes had issued a decree that on one day at the end of the year, all the Jewish people across the Persian Empire, uh, their neighbors had permission to come and kill them uh, and take all their stuff. All right? It was a decree of death, of annihilation for the people of God, and it had been decreed 11 months out from the day that it was to take place right? And so we kind of imagined last week, like imagine getting a decree like that, that at the end of the year, in 11 months, under the authority of the most powerful and wealthy empire in the world, everyone is allowed to come kill you and your family and take all your stuff. And then you've got 11 months to just sit around and wait for that day to come. Like, I mean, you think you've got some dark clouds you can't see past, right? This is a, this is a little bit of a dark cloud. It's hard to really see past that. It's probably difficult for the people of God right now to really see uh, a daylight and sunshine after this day of annihilation that has been decreed against them. It's probably difficult for them to, to uh, pray uh, positive and encouraging prayers to God at this point, right? It's probably difficult for the, even the perpetual optimist, uh, I'm sure, was struggling in these 11 months, and when the dark clouds hang over us, right, there's, there's a few responses we can have. All right? One one response when a dark cloud is hanging over us is that we can uh, kind of go into denial mode, right? We can we can ignore that anything is wrong. We can pretend like this decree of death has never been made and just kind of go on as business as usual, right? We can show up on a Sunday morning with just the, the superficial mentality. I'm okay. You're okay. We're okay. There's nothing wrong. Let's just kind of move on and just deny that there's this dark cloud sitting over us. This thing. St- fog that is in the midst of us. And, and people do this, right? You know, we, we do this. We, we live in denial at times. We deny the cloud and we pretend like it's all sunshine and rainbows. Another way we respond to these dark clouds is, is maybe we make some false assumptions about God. I, I'm, I'm sure the people of God in this story, in this time, were tempted to do this, right? Like surely God has abandoned us when they got this decree, I'm sure some of them were thinking, that's it. Like, he's finally fed up with us. He's tired of putting up with us. We disobeyed him one too many times, and now he's going to wipe us out completely. I'm sure there were many people thinking that and assuming that of God, that God had abandoned them, and therefore, let's abandon him, right? Like, and we do this as well. When, when we're in hard seasons, we assume that God's abandoned us, so we're going to abandon him. So we stop reading his word. We stop uh, praying. We stop gathering with his people. We at least acknowledge the dark cloud. We don't live in denial like the other people, but we stop participating in his plans and purposes because we, we assume he has withdrawn from us, and therefore we withdraw from him and from his people. We go to the sidelines. We stop participating in his providence. But surely there's a better way. Surely there's a better way. L- look at how Mordecai and many of the people respond, Right In the verses we just read, Mordecai tears his clothes. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. And many people in the empire do the same. And and what we see here is that there was fasting and there was weeping and there was lamenting. Now let's, let's try to understand this a bit because tearing our, our clothes and sackcloth and ashes is not a common thing uh, we do nowadays, right? Okay, But back in that time, tearing your clothes, it was not a, it was not a style or something that you were trying to you know, be cool about. Tearing your clothes was a way to express this deep distress. It was a way of expressing your mourning and your grieving. You tore your clothes sackcloth was usually made out of a black uh, goat's hair. It was extremely uncomfortable, right? Just imagine like the the itchiest uh, sweater your grandma ever gave you at Christmas like and multiply it by a hundred, right? That's sackcloth. It's just like it, it's supposed to be uncomfortable. It's, it's, uh, and then ashes. People put on ashes as a way of signifying just desolation and ruin, and so what we see in the Bible is we see people all throughout it. When someone dies or when someone is repenting or, or, or humbling themselves before the Lord, people will put on sackcloth and ashes to show their sorrow. Okay, this was a way for the people of God to show their intense grief as well as at times to show their repentance. And this is what Mordecai does. He tears his clothes, puts on sackcloth and ashes. He fasts, he weeps, he laments. And look what the other Jews are doing. Many of them are doing the same thing. Fasting, weeping, lamenting. Now we're going to talk about fasting here a little bit later on in the, in, the, in the sermon, but I want to look at this word lamenting. Lamenting. Because I think for many of us lamenting is an unknown thing, and yet it is a beautiful gift of grace that God has given to us. Pastor Mark Vrogop at College Park uh, Church on the north side of Indy, uh, he wrote a book called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, Discovering the Grace of Lament. And I I would commend this book to you as it's been a helpful resource for my own understanding of what this gift of lament is and how to pray prayers of lament. Because prayers of lament are, are what is needed when what we know to be true about God, right? That God is good, that God is love, right? That God is merciful. When what we know to be true about God does not align with how we are experiencing life right now. Like when those two things don't line up, we, how do we pray? How do we participate in God's plans and purposes? Do we go straight into denial mode and just pretend like everything's okay? Okay. Do we withdraw from our prayer life and just not go to the Lord at all? Or is there an alternative? Could prayers of lament be the answer that we are looking for? Is there something to the fact that nearly a third of the Psalms are Psalms of lament? And there's a whole book in the Bible called Lamentations. There's something here. Pastor Mark, in his book, he gives a helpful definition. We'll have this up on the screen, the definition of lament. He writes, lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Lament is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. Like, like, we know that God is good, and yet, yet many of our circumstances don't always fit that or make it hard to believe that. And, and so when that doesn't align, like, how are we to pray? Well, church, we don't, we don't have to come up with this on our own. God has graciously given us some guidance here. And so I'm going to take you through a psalm of lament. Uh, if you want to turn your Bibles to Psalm 13. We'll have it up on the the screen as well, but hold your spot in Esther. And if you want to turn to Psalm 13, we're just going to walk through this and see a psalm of lament. Uh, Pastor Mark, in this, in this book that I uh, referenced, after looking at many of the Psalms of Lament, after looking at the book of Lamentations, he gives four points that most of the lam- laments consist of. And so if, if some of you need to go do your own lamenting later on, if you need to be praying prayers of lament, you should write these four points down so you can write your own prayers of lament later on. Number one, he says lamenting consists to, of turning to God in prayer. Okay, that's the first part of lamenting, is turning to God in prayer. Look at Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Okay, lamenting is first turning to the Lord in prayer. Okay, it's not turning to your best friend. Uh, Lamenting is not turning to your uh, social media followers uh, to get their empathy. Uh, Lamenting is not turning to yourself. Uh, Lamenting is not turning to your life coach. Okay, lamenting is turning to the Lord in prayer. That's number one, turning to the Lord in prayer. Number two, lamenting consists of laying out your complaint to God. Look back at Psalm 13. How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? You might be thinking, I didn't know we could complain to God. Yes, yes, you can. It's it's in the Bible. It's biblical. All right, we do it it humbly. We do it respectfully. Uh, But it's not like he doesn't already know uh, the complaints in your heart. Okay? He he already knows. So we don't have to grumble in our heart about this dark cloud and the thick fog that we're in. We we don't have to hide it from God. Like, lay out your complaint to God. He can handle it, right? Our, Our friends can't always handle it. God can handle your complaints. Number three, lamenting consists of asking God boldly, making bold requests of God. Look back at Psalm 13. Verse 3, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him. Lest my foes reject, uh, sorry, rejoice because I am shaken. So number 3 is make a request to the Lord, right? Ask, Ask him boldly. Okay, so lamenting first starts of us turning to the Lord in prayer. Number two, laying out our complaints to the Lord. Number three, making some bold request of God. But then look at this, because this is the beautiful turn that laments take, okay? Anyone can complain and make requests to God. Lamenting makes a beautiful turn. Number four, lamenting consists of choosing to trust the Lord. Look back at Psalm 13, verse 5. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. So church, lament, it is a prayer in pain that leads to trust. It, consist, it consists of turning to the Lord in prayer. It consists of laying out your complaints to God. It consists of making a bold request. And then it consists in choosing to trust the Lord. David and the psalmist, they are not bipolar. I feel like I always grew up hearing like, man, they're bipolar, right? They're not bipolar. They're lamenting, okay? They're lamenting. They're turning to the Lord in prayer. They're laying out their complaints. They're making bold requests, and then they are choosing to trust the Lord in spite of this dark cloud and thick fog that is all around them. And church, this is a grace that we must learn to participate in in those times when what we know to be true about God is not lining up with how we are experiencing life. Like right, right, when marriages end, when children die, when jobs are lost, when persecution comes, when cancer is diagnosed, when injustice surrounds, when abuse is rampant. Like we can't live in denial, and we cannot withdraw and abandon God. No, we we lament. We lament, we turn to the Lord, we lay out our complaints, we make requests, and we choose to trust in God. We lament. And we as a church, we want to grow in our ability to lament. And this is one of the reasons that we are going to have a a prayer and worship gathering at the end of the month on Wednesday, uh, February 26th. It's what the historic church calendar has recognized as Ash Wednesday. And we are doing this gathering. We're not not doing anything with ashes. We're not doing this to just create another religious practice. But we're doing this because we want to celebrate the heart of why many Christians throughout history would gather on this day. They would gather— Rather to lament over the brokenness of the world, right? Many Sunday mornings are celebratory, and they should be, right? We celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, but there has to be a place in life. There has to be a, 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 a space with the people of God to come and lament over the brokenness in the world. There has to be a space for us to repent of our sin and to prepare for the celebration of Easter, you see, in order to really celebrate the resurrection well, you need to first celebrate Good Friday well. You need to understand the cross, right? And in order to really celebrate Good Friday well, you need to understand why the cross was necessary. You need to sit in and understand the brokenness in the world and, and your own uh, sin that has um, corrupted and, and affected you. And so that prayer and that worship gathering will have, it'll, it'll be a little bit more of a somber gathering, much like maybe many of the Good Friday gatherings you've been to in the past. What we're going to do is read some of the Psalms of lament. We're going to cry out over the brokenness of the world. We're going to make requests of God. And yet in the end, we are going to choose to trust the Lord and to trust in his provision to provide the world a Savior. But listen, uh, if you are in a dark cloud right now, right? And and you don't know how to communicate with God. Like, you don't know how you can talk with God. Like, you feel like you either have to live in denial or you either just have to abandon prayer. Listen, pray some prayers of lament. This is how you participate with God in the midst of a dark cloud. You pray prayers of lament, But listen, the fourth step of lamenting can be really difficult, right? Choosing to trust the Lord, like that's probably the most difficult step of a prayer of lament. Uh, When a dark cloud is overhead and you can't really see past it, you can't see kind of hope on the other side, choosing to trust the Lord is a really difficult thing uh, because it can feel like in the fog that there is no way to get to God. And you can imagine, think back to Esther now, okay? You turn back in your Bibles to Esther. Uh, you can imagine how the people of God felt here in our story. There is no way they can get to Xerxes and live to tell about it, right? Who, who is going to plead their case? What the people need is they need someone to go into the throne room on their behalf. They need a mediator. They need a mediator. Look back at Esther 4, verse 5. Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who had been appointed to attend her, and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate, and Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther has, had said. Okay, so Hathak, one of the eunuchs, is kind of the go-between right now between Esther and Mordecai, right? Uh, So he kind of, he gets sense from Esther. He kind of goes over to Mordecai. He's like, Esther says this. Mordecai gives him a message. He kind of goes back, right? Mordecai says this. Esther gives him a message, right? So we're we're already seeing a go-between here, right? We're seeing Hathak kind of go in between Mordecai and Esther. Then look at verse 13. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. Now here's where some commentators kind of disagree because there's a little uh, ambiguity here. We can't get inside of Mordecai's head to really know what he's saying, okay? Like is he just stating a fact that, hey, you are a Jew too? Uh, this is going to eventually affect you? Um, or, or some commentators, and I don't want to like crush anyone's uh, like really high view of Mordecai, some commentators think he's actually making a threat here to Esther, right? Uh, like hey, no one else knows that Esther is a Jew. Is he somewhat threatening to expose her identity if she doesn't step up and go plead with Xerxes on behalf of the people? Is he applying some pressure? We don't We don't know, okay? We can assume the best of Mordecai. Maybe that's not true. Uh, but but uh, look look then at verse 14, okay? And even if you don't know anything about Esther before this series, you have probably heard verse 14. So this is a, a big verse, popular verse. Uh, verse 14 says, For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise from the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, that's definitely the most quotable and tweetable phrase in the book of Esther, right? For such a time as this. And here's where you would expect me to go into a long rant, how, like, God's got you in your job, in your neighborhood, in your school, right? For such a time as this. And, and uh, we're in this city, right? For such a time as this. And I'd bust out the t-shirt cannon with, like, t-shirts of, like, for such a time as this, right? Uh, and, and and I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Uh, for the record, the t-shirt cannon, if the finance team would approve it, we would have one. Uh, so that's not on me that we don't have one. All right. That's not on me. Uh, but man, church people, we get hype on the for such a time as this, right? I mean, you could be trying to like talk someone up to, to go share the gospel or go do something. All you have to say is for such a time as this, and they're like, yeah, man, I'm, I'm going, right? Like that is we get, we get hype. Now, now listen, it, it's, it's true, okay? It's true. I do believe that God sovereignly has placed us in the year 2020 uh, in the city of Franklin or Johnson County or wherever you live. I very much believe that, yes, it has been determined for us to live in this time in this people for such a time as this. That is true. So I'm not trying to mock that. I just... I think you've probably heard already a bunch of sermons like that, right? I just, it's, it's, it's true. We have been placed here for such a time as this, uh, but if you want that message, just go YouTube for such a time as this, and you'll there'll be plenty that you can listen to. But what I want to make sure, what I want to guard against, is that we do not let the popular verse distract us from the main need of the people of God in this passage, okay? We cannot let the popular... Uh, the, 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 just the, the quotable, uh, the, the Christian bookstore, if there's any more of those, right? The, that phrase, we can't let that distract us from the main need of the people of God in this story. The main need of the people of God is not that they need to embrace the for such a time as this mentality. Like that, that's not the need of the people right here. They don't just need to, like, understand the for such a time as this mentality. The main need of the people of God is that they need a mediator for such a time as this. They need a mediator for such a time as this. They need for someone to go on their behalf into the throne room, a place they could never get to, and plead with a king they could never approach. And dear church, is this not the need of every man, woman, and child here this morning? We need a mediator for such a time as this. We need a mediator to approach a sovereign, all-powerful God who is absolutely holy, whose glory would undo any sinful person who dared step in his presence. We need a mediator for such a time as this. And I think most people uh, at, at the heart of things know that they need a mediator. Something interesting that's happened to me uh, as I've started into ministry uh, is this, this, this overwhelmingly consistent response that people give me uh, when, when they find out that I'm a pastor okay? Uh, and there at first, in the beginning of ministry, uh, you know, I work in the, in the medical field, and so when people ask me uh, what I do, I would usually always respond with, I'm a physician assistant, or I work in uh, the medical field, or something like that, just because that's what I'd always done. It was my natural knee-jerk reaction. Uh, and when I would tell people that, then usually it would be followed with, you know, them showing me like a weird rash, or a mole, or something like that. Some of you can relate to that, right? Wanting to go over their list of medications, and, and uh, uh, you know, talk about stuff they've, you know, seen on the news. And, uh, and so anyway, I, I don't have to do that anymore. Praise God. Uh, I'm now glad I can lead with I'm a pastor. I kind of keep that other thing on the DL, right? I keep that quiet. Uh, but then what happens more times than not when I tell someone that I'm a pastor, and, I, and I'm telling you guys this, I mean, not every time, but overwhelmingly what happens is they typically respond with this, I think, Midwestern guilty conscience, and they go into this awkward explanation of why they haven't been to church in a while, right? And I'm just, I'm just trying to get a haircut or coffee. Like, I'm not, I'm not probing this. Like, I'm just, you know, they asked what I do. I said I'm a pastor, and they're just like, well, you know, I've been working long hours, uh, had a lot of things going on on the weekends. I don't know if I've totally processed 9-11, and I don't know what to do with gluten. No one's, you know, <laughs> the, kind of the, the, you know, the jury is out. I don't know. And, uh, and I'm just, and I'm thinking, like, hey, like they think I'm going to go tattle to God on them or something, right? Like, hey, God, I met this person, and man, they haven't been going to church in a while, but they've got some excuses, right? They've got some legitimate reasons here. But I think people at the heart of it, they know they need a mediator between them and the Lord. And so often we have this false view of our pastors as needing to be our mediators between us and God. Now, now, church, I do lift up prayers for you on your behalf, but I am not your mediator between you and God. I've been sent to proclaim to you that Esther is not primarily teaching you to be like Esther, but that the story of Esther is pointing you to a true and better mediator who did not just risk his life to save his people, but gave his life to save his people. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, it says, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, The man, Christ, Jesus. So tell your friends in Franklin, I don't want to hear their excuses about not coming to church. Like that's between them and the Lord, right? They can work that out. Over over 1,500 years ago, Augustine wrote this. He wrote, "Uh, God became a man so that following a man, something you are able to do, you might reach God, which was formerly impossible to you. Jesus, being fully God and fully man, has become the perfect mediator that humanity has longed for, who gave his life to save his people, who now intercedes and mediates for us in the presence of the Father. And Mordecai tells Esther, Esther... Here's an invitation to participate in the providence of God. Here's an invitation to to point to the true and better mediator who will one day come. But but Mordecai also expresses his faith in God's providence, right? Because he says, if she doesn't participate, deliverance is going to rise up from another place. The, the the clarinet is being offered to her for her joy, right, in participation, but the show's gonna go on with or without her. God's promises to his people will be upheld. And so church, when the dark cloud is all around you, when it feels like a thick fog that you can't see past, and it feels like there's no way you can get to God, remember that in your own strength, it is impossible to get to God. But God being rich in his mercy and out of his great love, he has gotten to you. And Jesus came to die in your place, to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven, to mediate on your behalf so that you could still enjoy a a relationship with God even in the midst of the dark cloud, even in the midst of the fog all around you. You can have a relationship with the Lord because of your mediator, Jesus Christ. Jesus has become your mediator for such a time as this. The cloud the fog, the dark seasons. Jesus has become your mediator for such a time as this. Well, you might be saying, okay, well, how do we participate in the providence of God? That's what I kind of opened up with. Like the doers in the room, uh, right, there's, there's, I know, I know some of you, right, you're doers, right? You really want to go do something. We've, so, so what do we do? How do we participate in the providence of God? Well, we've talked about lamenting, okay? So hopefully that's something you can say, yes, I can go go pray prayers of lament. But what else? Give me something else. So look back at Esther chapter 4, and we're going to talk about something else that we are to do in such a time as this. I'm still going to use that phrase a lot, all right? So I'm not throwing it out. I'm going to drop it in here and there. All right, Esther 4 verse 15. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa and hold a fast on my behalf. And do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Okay, I don't think the, I don't think the primary takeaway is to go be like Esther out of this passage, all right? In the next few chapters, we are going to see some courage of Esther. We're, we're going to apply that, so don't get me wrong. There are some good things that Esther does in this story that we are going to apply, but but I don't think we primarily walk away from this and say, go be like Esther, right? Go, go mediate on behalf of God's people. No, Jesus is our true and better mediator. So since the role of mediator has been filled, how can we directly apply this to us? Like, what's the application for us? I think it can better be drawn from what the the people of God are asked to do look what the people of God are asked to do what does Esther ask the people to do to go without food for three days go without food and drink for three days now, most of you are like, no, man, I'm, I'm Esther in the story. I'm going to be Esther. I'm going to get courage. I'm not going to go three days without eating or drinking, right? Uh, but listen, you're not Esther in the story, okay? You're not. The Bible's primarily not even about you. I know that's hard to, to see that as, as life seems like it's about you. You would assume the Bible's about you, but it's not, okay? What the people of God are called to do in such a time as this is they are called to fast and pray. Now, it doesn't say they fasted and prayed because in, in, in fitting with the theme of the book where God is not mentioned and prayer is not mentioned, uh, but typically fasting was with the Jewish people, also associated with prayer as well. And so it is likely that the people of God were fasting and praying for these three days. Now, fasting is something that's unfortunately been a a neglected practice for many followers of Jesus. Uh, However, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it is something that we see the people of God regularly doing. Jesus uh, fasted, and when he taught, he assumes that we will fast too. He taught taught with words like, when you fast, right? Not if you fast, but when you fast. Fasting is actually, I didn't know this, but fasting is actually mentioned in the Bible more than baptism is. Right? Which is, I I didn't know that. Uh, John Wesley would not allow a man into ministry if he did not consistently fast two days a week. Fasting has been a regular part of the people of God participating in his providence throughout history. And yet for many of us, it's it's a foreign concept. And I forgot where I read this, uh, but, but I, I wish I could give them credit, but it's an author I recently read. They posed this question. They said, could it be that we do not hunger for God because in the West we don't even understand the concept of hunger? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, right? Like we, we go a few hours and we're, we're kind of mapping out where we're going to eat next. I realize this is risky to talk about fasting towards the end of a sermon. Uh, I should have, in hindsight, would have done it at first, right? Uh, but we're like, we're already starting to think, yeah, what are we going to eat? It's been, it's been at least like an hour and a half since I last ate something. Uh, what's, what's going on? But could it be, could it be that we don't hunger and thirst? for righteousness. We don't hunger and thirst for the Lord because we don't even know what hunger is. Like, like how can we when we don't even understand the concept of hunger? Now, there are a lot of things you can fast from, but I'm mainly talking about fasting from food. Uh, A Christian fast from food is a deliberate choice to experience hunger physically in order to explore our level of hunger for God. It's a way to express our dependence upon God and to show that we we believe uh, uh, that we do not live by just bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And this is is a habit of grace that we're going to talk about in the next few weeks. I want to share more with you about fasting, both the physical and the spiritual uh, benefits that God provides uh, to us through this practice, but I at least wanted to get you thinking uh, this morning about it. But remember, anytime we talk about spiritual disciplines, anytime we talk about habits of grace, we do not practice them, right? Whether it's Bible reading or prayer or silence and solitude or fasting or giving or like, we do not practice these in a pursuit of righteousness or earning our favor with God, okay? No. Like, not, like our, our justification, our declaration of rightness with God happened immediately when we repented of our sin and trusted in Christ for our salvation. We don't practice spiritual disciplines in a pursuit of righteousness. We practice them in a pursuit of joy, of the joy of the Lord. We practice these things to commune with God and to abide with Jesus. And as I've fasted, and as many others have fasted, as they've experienced this physical hunger, it has sharpened their prayer life. It has stirred up affections for the Lord. It has caused us to to hunger and to cry out for the Lord and to allow Him to satisfy and sustain us. And as we kind of wind things down, Joshua and Tim, you guys can go ahead and come. Back up. Uh, But listen, fasting and praying and lamenting, it only makes sense in a world where God is providential. It only makes sense if God's providence is true. Like if God's not in control, if God's not in charge of how everything turns out, like you better eat something because you're going to need some strength for what's ahead, right? You're going to need some energy if God is not providential. Fasting and prayer, it only makes sense in a world where God's providence is true. Fasting and prayer, it only makes sense in a world where Jesus is our mediator. Because listen, if Jesus isn't your mediator, you better go carbo-load to have some energy to mediate for yourself, right? But listen, fasting and prayer makes sense in a world where God's providence is true and where Jesus is our mediator, And so the question is, is our lack of fasting and prayer, is it lacking because we don't really trust in God's providence and we don't really believe Jesus is our mediator? But in a world where God is in control, in a world that he is in charge In a world where he never makes mistakes, in a world where he has his people's best interest at heart, in a world where Jesus has laid down his life to save his people, like before the people of God are to go and do, which we certainly are to go and do things, but before we go and do, God certainly calls us first to come and be, right? To come and be, to sit at his feet and to abide in his presence. And so to participate in his providence is to enjoy his presence both in the good days of sunshine and in the dark days of the cloud and the fog. And so listen, church, when what we know about God to be true and how we experience life, when those things don't align... When the dark cloud is around us and we can't see beyond it, even when it seems like a decree of death hangs over us and we are discouraged and we are certain that we don't have any hope, even in the negative and discouraging times, we are called to participate in the plans and purposes of God. But we don't need to live in denial and we don't need to withdraw from God. But instead, when the fog is all around you, we can lament We can fast, and we can pray. These are things that God has graciously offered to us through Jesus as our mediator for such a time as this. And I'm going to close with a couple verses from Lamentations. Lamentations 2, verse 1. I'll just read the first part of it. It says, How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. It's the language we've been using, right? Being set under a cloud. But later in the book, we see a turn. In Lamentations 3, verse 21, we see it turn. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. Church Jesus has become our mediator for such a time as this. Let's pray.